0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Tobin. Kathy. We are still in the closet.
2: Yes, more specifically, we're still in my closet recording together in Los Angeles. Yeah,
1: a week has definitely passed. (laughs) (laughs) But we are here in your nice cozy closet in Los Angeles where I like to visit you, Mm -hmm. and I am jealous every time I come. You know, you
2: like New York okay, don't you?
1: I like it okay.
2: It's going to be your first winter there. How are you feeling about that?
1: It's going to be magical with, you know, snow and ice and coats.
2: Wow, the sincerity, (laughs) the sincerity dripping in your voice.
1: It's going to be great.
2: (laughs) Anyway, Mm -hmm. we're back here with another little gift for you, Nancy listeners, and this one is a doozy.
1: And uh, what does this gift look like this time?
2: If I were to describe this gift, I would say it's a giant box wrapped in our dreams. (laughs)
1: What does our dream look like?
2: Uh glitter and stardust.
1: <laughs> okay, sure. But I think more importantly, when you open this box, mm-hmm. inside you find a star. Someone who has appeared in Jurassic Park. <sighs> Someone who was in Law & Order SVU. Oh my god. Someone who is in the upcoming Comedy Central show called Aquafina is Nora from Queens.
2: Our guest today is Mother Fudging B D Wong. <laughs> We got the chance to interview BD live on stage at Asia Society in New York, and there was so much to talk about. He's had such an amazing career.
1: Yeah, like when he won the Tony in 1988 for his role in the Broadway play M. Butterfly.
0: Now, I believe that you would consider this girl to be a deranged idiot, correct? But because it's an Oriental who kills herself for a Westerner, ah, you'll find it beautiful.
2: He starred as a Chinese opera star who disguises himself in drag to hide his true identity as a spy for the Chinese government.
1: And we also can't forget, he was in Margaret Cho's groundbreaking sitcom All-American Girl.
0: And this is my mute sister, Margaret.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bonjour, Tammy.
0: (laughs) She's a French mute.
1: (laughs) Well, we're off. It was the first primetime sitcom to feature an all-Asian-American cast. BD played Margaret's older brother on the show.
2: So, long story short, we had a lot we were curious about when we talked with BD about his
1: career. Which is why we wanted to start all the way back at the beginning by talking about his childhood, growing up in San Francisco.
2: We want to start by going back to the beginning. Oh, God. Um, Okay. We all have in common that we are California Asians. Oh, yeah. You grew up in San Francisco. I grew up in San Francisco, yeah. Um, Growing up, did you feel connected and part of an Asian community?
0: I did. In some ways, I was kind of forced to by my parents because we moved out to the Sunset District, which is kind of, at the time, it was not Asian at all. Like, we were among the first families to to move out there. And it removed us from a proximity to Chinatown that was, I could feel, when I look back on it, too, I could feel that my parents were very, very torn about this. They were kids that grew up in Chinatown, San Francisco. They were born and raised in San Francisco. They spoke Chinese. They um, they were more attached to the root culture than my brothers and I ended up being. Hmm. And so it was a big step for them to move out to the avenues. And I could feel them struggling with it. it. Immediately, the first thing that happened was when my younger brother and I did not have to go to Chinese school, which we were thrilled about.
1: <laughs> oh, my God, I'm so <laughs> you know, jealous. Yeah, uh,
0: you know, we, we <laughs> were <laughs> off the hook, actually. And, and then, um, so as a way of kind of making up for that, my parents sent us to the YMCA in Chinatown every week for a good part of our childhood and early teen years to be a part of a boys' youth group, which was super kind of... Very geared towards teaching young Chinese-American boys about being Chinese, you know, just kind of expo- being in Chinatown and all of that stuff, but was also kind of like the non-gayest thing ever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so it was
0: very sports driven. I was super not into that part of it. I didn't respond to any of the activities that ever were brought up. What were you, you, know, guys,
1: what were you guys doing?
0: Playing sports, playing, going, you know, <laughs> playing basketball. Or I actually was into some of the things like community service mm. and going to hospitals and stuff like that. Other stuff that the other boys didn't like at all. As far as being in San Francisco, you know, I was. I grew up in the '70s. It was like kind of a gay fantasy world in some ways for a kid who was like an adolescent kid in San Francisco when people were exploring all these things and and you could have. Uh, interaction with gay people who were actually kind of out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so that formed my understanding of the power of being out and the importance of it, and yet the fear of it, mm-hmm. all intertwined, completely intertwined.
1: And how did you find your way to acting and then eventually becoming an actor?
0: Yes, I. Um, this is good. I, I, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was a, a, a young violin-playing kid, and I was allowed by my parents to play the violin of all the things that I chose to do that was not like academic and, and the, the one performance-related thing that they were kind of into, whether it's a stereotypical reason or not, they were, in, they were okay with me playing the violin. And I played the violin for many years from like fourth grade to 10th uh, uh, grade. And I had private lessons. I was, I took it very serious. I was, I was apparently really good at it. You know, I, I, I was, and, and it was in 10th grade that, Um, A teacher came into my class, like a math class or something, and said, we're recruiting kids to play for the school play, the school musical. We're we're putting together an orchestra for the school musical. Mm -hmm. And uh, I turned to my friend, Sherry Samuel, who was a little bit of an actress, and I said, that's what I'm going to do. I want to play for the school musical. That sounds like fun. And she says, oh, no. (laughs) She says, the action is not in the orchestra pit. The action is on the stage. Hmm. And I said... I was kind of secretly hoping someone would make me go to the tryout instead, and she was going to the tryout. She dragged me there, and it began this relationship with my drama teacher, which opened the doors for me completely. She really saw something in me. She begged me and implored me and demanded that I not squander uh, the potential of my gifts, and she... Played a re- big role in this kind of grand negotiation with my parents about my future, about what I would choose to do, even extracurricularly, and then later on, uh, you know, going into the professional world, mm. and um, that was crucial for me. I had a lot of moxie, but I was, uh, I had a lot of trepidation about kind of whether being an actor was even viable for lots of reasons that we all know, and. And I wasn't sure about it. And she made me consider it. And she mm-hmm. made my parents consider it. And my parents then considered it, really. They, they came around. My older brother, um, who was nine years, who is nine years older than me, um, became a doctor. And that was kind of like a mixed blessing for me. He was a straight-A student who created a lot of pressure for me because he, he was the Marsha Brady of the family. And... <laughs> and and uh, and and yet, at the same time, he became a doctor, and they ticked that box off. Oh, and you were yeah. good, and then I was off the hook, kind of. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I, I I have to ask my mom, who will probably have a hilarious recounting of this, um, <laughs> and and uh, but she, what her perception of this was. But they came around, is how is how I re- recall. Wow. Yeah, and I, I realized this. This is you know, part of our kind of juju together our, our interaction and even intergenerationally that this is a thing I go to colleges and universities and I'm it, the biggest question is I'm Asian American I'm studying this I don't want to study this I want to do that what do I do mm. and I'm put in a position where I have to kind of uh, say I want you to do what you want to do yeah but your parents paid for you to come here <laughs> And the university paid for me to come and speak to you. (laughs) So.
2: um, Part of the education.
0: (laughs) But I do encourage them to follow their bliss of the course. I mean, I'm the example for them in some ways of how that can be all right.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, so you had this, arguably your big break or one of many breaks is your Tony winning role in M Butterfly. Uh, which was incredible. Um, yeah, go ahead. All right.
0: <laughs> you weren't
2: even born. <laughs> the YouTube clips, the YouTube clips are amazing. Um, but I wanted, <laughs> we wanted to ask though that, you know, there's so many themes in that play around gender and sexuality. Yeah. Um, what did it change for you in your understanding of gender and sexuality?
0: Oh, it, it, well, it, if it didn't change anything in the moment when it was happening, it certainly really activated things. And in some ways, it created tension in myself that I needed to kind of have happen. Mm-hmm. Because of all of the stuff about watching television and being very desperate and, and kind of not sure about becoming an actor, I had really weird Asian self-esteem. -hmm. I didn't want to be Asian. I didn't want to be Asian, and I didn't want to be gay. And those those two things actually were kind of intertwined. I I, now this is kind of the theme of my college speech is that I feel a real parallel between being an ethnic minority and being a gay person because of the way the negotiations that I had to do in my mind to get over both of those things. Neither of those things I wanted to be. I think the reason why I didn't want to be those things is because I wanted to be an actor. And because being an actor meant those things were not, they didn't go together. Mm. Mm. And when I was a kid watching television, I thought, well, if you want to be an actor, that's the actor I want to be. Matthew Broderick is who I wanted to be. And I would have had an operation to turn me into Matthew Broderick in a heartbeat. (laughs) I I would have, if there was GoFundMe at the time, I would have (laughs) (laughs) GoFundMe. Uh, Matthew Broderick knows, and I would have been really happy doing yeah. that. And but the, the feelings were that when I went into M Butterfly, I was very cynical and very um, uh, uh, kind of kind of really not in a great place about it. And M Butterfly kind of overnight... Well, first of all, at the time when I was debating flying myself to New York to audition for the play, I finally read this play, and it was the first play I'd ever read that had an Asian, guy's, an Asian person's, Asian writer's name on the front of the, the cover. And, and I had been struggling over the years to understand what my place was, what my voice would be, what I could... You know, the technique that I was learning in, from my acting teacher was this philosophy of being an, a messenger, And I thought, well, that's great. I'll be a messenger. But what does that really mean? I wasn't 100% sure. And kind of magically, I read this play. And the play had in it all of these things that I felt about being an Asian man, being an Asian man in the media, about how we're treated that way and what the things that we do in order to compensate for that and, and the trickery of racism and all of that stuff. And I entered into this play that luckily became a big success and it changed my self-esteem about being Asian because we were treated very well. It was a huge success. We, you know, were um, uh, given uh, prizes and stuff like that. And I, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm super Asian now. Like, I became uber, <laughs> uber-like, uber-like Asian. And... and and I was thrilled about this. It was really great and and if you know the play is about the twenty year relationship between a French diplomat and a Chinese actress who turns out to be a man and um, the, the kind of um, world falling apart of this French diplomat when he realized that his paramour is is not a the uh, the ultimate Chinese stereotypical flower that he thought she was and the irony was that I was, you know, making speeches about uber Asian and I couldn't go to the gay place. I mm. was, you know, I was in a play with this other actor and we were ostensibly in a kind of um, same-sex relationship, actually, technically. And, and um, I couldn't, I would steer all conversations away with it and it took me a long time to kind of figure it out. It wasn't until the, the birth of my son and the subsequent book that got published about him that I got on board with being gay and came out, like actually came out for real, um, beyond my own personal life.
2: Yeah. Mm. Well, at the same time, you've also talked about growing up and watching TV and film and only seeing white faces, basically. Yes,
0: right. I have to say, and I really don't want to toot my own horn, or like, this is not a self-congratulatory thing, but I, be- I became so desperate about it and I remember I moved to L.A. I was living there and I finally met for the first time after moving to... I first came to New York from San Francisco in, in well, let's not say a year. And, <laughs> and, and then I spent a few uh, years here. And then uh, by circumstances, I ended up in L.A. And it was the first time when I was in L.A., that I met a community of Asian American actors. And I met a community. There was a very well-established Asian American theater there that's still there. And I met these people, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is what it means to be an Asian actor. There's a thing. It's Mm -hmm. called an Asian actor, and that's what it looks like, and that's what it is, and that's how it interacts with its other members of its own species in its natural (laughs) habitat. And I thought, oh, I see what this is. But I realized, I remember I went to an event uh, a, a kind of an advocacy event and awards it was at the time when they would give awards to producers for hiring agents for various things you know ex- kind of a media awards kind of thing and I was standing in the back I was volunteering I was new in town and I was like kind of volunteering there and I remember thinking oh I see this is what it is if you want that if you want that career you want that success you have to commit to being an agent in some kind of change of it it's not working. The system's broken. It hasn't. It didn't work for you as a consumer when you watch TV as a young kid. And so if that's... You do the math. It's not going to change unless somebody, like, kind of bangs the door down. And so I didn't know what that meant at all. I just knew that it meant I couldn't be passive about it. Like mm. I, so I, I, I tried to ad- begin to adopt at a very young age a way of discussing it, even in the way that we're discussing it now, that... Um, a lot of people of my generation were doing at the time hmm. and continue to still do. And um, that's a, also a byproduct of this desperation, right? It's like it, it, there's a, there are times when you go, Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to be so good at talking about this? Or why, why can't I just act, really, is what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the, by the same token, it's extremely good for you. It feels good. It feels like I feel like this is part of who I am now. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind it at all. I, I think it's kind of great. I like I like it. I like that I've been forced to become this person.
2: Mm. More with BD after the break. We're back. Let's jump right back into our conversation with mother-fudging BD Wong. You have this thing about your career. You're in a, in a lot of things that were firsts, right? Or like, Forefront kind of thing. So like All-American Girl you were oh, part right, of. Right,
0: yeah.
2: Uh, which was the Margaret Show, all-Asian cast TV show. Yeah. Um, and also this moment you had an M. Butterfly. And you've talked before about the pressure of like, this thing cannot fail. Have you experienced that a lot in your career?
0: I, those two times are when I really felt it the most. For All-American Girl, I mean, I would sit around with Margaret and the other actors in the play and we would feel a, a sense of, kind of importance, or a, importance isn't the right word, because we didn't feel full of ourselves, but we felt, oh, wow, well, this is kind of like they're, they're saying this is the first... It, the first... It was 1995, and it was, there had never been an Asian-American family on television before, which let's, we could talk for an hour about that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so therefore, as a result, you would think, okay, so then here you are, you're the first Asian-American family. Now what? What? Uh, Go for it, you guys. You know, like and, and knock yourselves out. You know, and and then and then the and, and actually, it kind of was a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. The the, the criticism of, about that show was it was over scrutinized, and it was it didn't last. And it's a shame because of all of, you know, it, 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 it was a perfectly fine show. It could have been way better, but it was a perfectly fine show. It happens, though, you know. It's like you're talking about being the only Asian in the room or something like that. You, 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 you have this sense of pressure. When you're the only anything in the room, right? You feel a sense of some kind of pressure to represent or to make... Good. Not everyone feels this, um, Arguably it's possible that a lot of Asian people feel this because they're trained to um, want to do good and want to um, um, not let people down. Um, and that's a huge blanket statement, but you we all know what that means. And- it's, there's, there's truth to it. There's exceptions to every rule. We have to say that. But um, we all feel that I, some of the bond that I have with some of my Asian friends is that we feel this and that we it rules our lives. I mean, I, feel I, I, I There are times when I go into Century Twenty One or something like that, and I'm uh, thinking about um, what my mother will think about my underwear choices. <laughs> <laughs> no, Mom won't like that. Don't get those. Don't get those. If you get those, don't wear them at her house. <laughs> you, know. you know what I'm saying? It's yes. Like that, that happens. It's yes. just You can't help
1: it. <laughs> I mean, us making the show, half the time, I just don't want him to be disappointed in me. Yes,
2: right. Yeah, we have, with, between ourselves, we are each other's disappointed parents.
0: Yeah. yeah. 100%. Well, somebody has to be there by, by, by proxy, right? Yeah, have exactly. to, you, 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 you. <laughs> Well, you know. Right, exactly. Um,
1: so you mentioned earlier that you didn't come out publicly until... Your son was born. Yeah. Why that moment?
0: First of all, to, to make a public statement about uh, and come out at the time, this is 2003, um, was it, in the world of press releases and things that happen, you know, there's, it's like, what? What are you trying to do? Oh, hello, I'm gay. And it's like not a real, you know, Ellen needed a whole television show episode in order to do it, and, and that made sense, right? Mm-hmm. It was centered around this thing. There was focus on it. Actually, what happened was I was doing um, a book tour to go out on the road and talk about this book on Today Show. And I was going to go on um, CNN with Anderson Cooper. And I was packing my bags to go on this book tour around the country. And I I was packing, like as me, as I usually do at the last minute and kind of harried. And I thought, (laughs) oh, wow, you know what? You're coming out. You know, because I didn't realize that I was going out there. And at this point, my son, who had been born through surrogacy, they were going to be like, Oh, I wasn't going to be able to kind of say, "Oh, uh, uh, well, he came from um, you know uh, my ex-wife or something like that." <laughs> I was had no intention of doing that. Yeah. yeah. But what I realized that this meant, oh, that's like coming out, mm-hmm. and and it was really it was positive and joyful, and it made me feel good, and I was excited about it. But it was it hit it was kind of it was a thing that had to actually hit me because I was running around doing all this other stuff, and I thought, oh, yes, okay, yes, coming out. All right, let's do it. How
2: do, you, how do you look back on that moment now, sort of having become, I would say, like an
0: icon of like being out and proud? Yeah, well, the way that I, the thing that always I'm always reminded of is that After Right after M. Butterfly, I started becoming a professional speaker. I started getting hired to go to a lot of colleges and universities. And I loved doing it, interfacing with the the students and talking to them about all this stuff. And I eventually, after the book came out, I started uh, talking about gay stuff, too. But in the, before I started talking about gay stuff, I was very controlled. I had this Itoya presentation binder, the kind with the clear plastic sleeves in it that you put your speech in. <laughs> you know what the one I mean. <laughs> and I would stand behind the lectern. We don't have one here. And I would stand behind the lectern and I would read that speech from the beginning to the end. And then I would take questions. And if questions that came up that were uncomfortable for me, I would steer the questions away from my personal life or things like that. And it wasn't until the book came out that I started infusing um, the gay part of my story into the, the, um, into the speech, the presentation. And I literally uh, came out from behind the, the lectern. I, got, I started using a lav. I came out and I realized that the first couple of times, oh, wow, this is what it feels like to be me. You know, like I'm just talking to people, and I'm just kind of saying, and that's how you do it. And, blah, 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 and I'm just whatever I'm saying. I wasn't in that kind of controlled space anymore, and it felt incredibly liberating and um, extremely satisfying. And I was very happy with with that happening so organically to me. Yeah, I'll get it. <laughs> it's one of those Chinese robocalls. <laughs>
1: That's true. The ones oh my God, that you get
2: so block? Mm. She tries to talk to them all the time. Yeah.
1: And they always hang up on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, once I got as far as being like, "Why are you doing this?"
0: Oh, you mean you actually talk? But I get these like recorded ones. Yeah, where... they
1: say press one or two for something. <laughs> oh, so I see, always I the, press. I don't that.
0: understand what they're saying. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs>
1: he was just like, "I don't have a choice. I have to call." And I was like, "Wow, this is sad." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, then he hung up on me. Um your son is here. We wouldn't want you to not have the opportunity to embarrass him in any way that you feel like you oh. want to. So if there's anything you want to get out there, uh, no. share a story or two um,
0: He would not respond well to that. <laughs> and trust me when I tell you that I would be the one that would pay. <laughs> And so I will take this opportunity to say that he is a recent uh, high school graduate, and I'm very proud of him.
1: Oh.
2: Okay. I think we have reached the point in our show where we would love to open it up to some oh. audience Q and A. Yeah. If anyone has questions for us, or more likely, BD. <laughs>
1: it's fine. We're cool with it.
0: The young man in the blue shirt is actually related to me, so. I would
2: oh. Have- I think we have to go there. Then. Hi. Um, can you, you uh, say your no, name and how you know the um, <laughs> interviewer? Well, oh, my face? name's uh, Jackson Wong. I don't, um, I don't know, I just came to this um, panel <laughs> to see you two. Cool. To see cool. you two. I actually, stumbled I've never in off the street, encountered this uh, individual before sitting to the right. <laughs> but... Um, uh, upon some research, your Twitter bio says BD has no periods. However, uh, that your book cover ha- clearly has periods that were intentionally uh, placed oh, there. Name. So, uh, yeah. can you uh, confirm He's or tonight to that the periods in my name? Oh. Yes. Okay. <laughs> wow, you're just getting red for filth right yes, now. Periods yes, periods in your name. Oh.
0: <laughs> Did I not warn you? Um, The, um... uh, Well, thank you so much for your question. Oh, of course, of course. And thank you for coming tonight. Um, Well, um, as I told some random person who asked me this a few days ago, (laughs) uh, there was um, a time when I... Oh, you don't even know this. I, uh... After... I became B.D. Wong for in, in 1989. I then I got on SVU, and it wasn't until like 2000. It was when you were born that I took the contract on on Law and Order SVU because I didn't want to leave New York, and so um, I stayed on that show for 11 years. And during the course of that show, I had to uh, my driver's license expired, and so I had to put my real name on the driver's license and I wanted BD Wong to be on my driver's license because it had been well established as my name so I said I'm changing my name to BD Wong officially I'm going to go to the DMV and I'm going to get my name and at the DMV they would not allow me to have periods in my name they were just that DMV weird way about everything (laughs) and and as a matter of fact the way that my name came out was B comma C.
2: No. Wong. Yeah.
0: And I said, I'm not going to be B, comma. <laughs> so I'm going to be BD and I'm going to take the periods out. And in order to be kind of consistent, I started to tell everyone in the uh, the credits of new projects that I was on. And we, we told SVU. And there's a period of time in which I'm mostly BD with periods. And then after that, it, it is no periods. And when the book came out, it was 2003. And I was still in period mode. At the, I was still having my periods then. <laughs> and um, I, so then it, it, that's what happened. You know, I, I, it became, I, I changed all the credit cards. I had to go and I had to get mail and bring them to the DMV and all these credit card companies to redo everything. And now my passport and my driver's license and everything um, say the same thing. And it is BD without periods. And you know, it's it's a nightmare at TSA because they're like, what is this? What is this? You know, and there are plenty of times when I go somewhere or something like Alexa will say, boom. But no
1: regrets. no regrets. But no regrets. You know. <laughs> That's good.
0: Thank you so much for your
1: question. <laughs> I love how hard his son trolled him.
2: I loved it, too. I hope that if I'm ever a dad, my child will comfort me like that.
1: (laughs) My child will never do that.
2: Oh, that's true. You will not tolerate that. I will not tolerate it. (laughs) All right, folks. uh, That is it for this time around. But next week, we have one last gift.
1: And here is a hint. It's about talking, laughing, loving, breathing. Uh,
2: Fighting, fudging, crying, drinking. Fudging? (laughs) I don't don't know. (laughs) I've been saying fudging this whole time.
1: Some of you know exactly what we're talking about and some of you are a little confused. But either way, we'll see you next week. See you next time.
2: All right, credits...
1: Our staff includes Zakia Gibbons and Jeremy Bloom.
2: Special thanks this week to Neil Dinesha and Rachel Rosado at Asia Society.
1: I'm Kathy too. I'm Tobin Lowe. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios.